Decemberists, This Is Why We Fight, from their 2006 album, The King Is Dead. And this is KRFP, Moscow, Idaho, 90.3 on the FM dial. KRFP.org, where our programming is streamed live. I'm John Andercheck. The show is Labor Lines, a weekly two-hour broadcast of music and interviews regarding the labor front. I'd like to start out, as I've been doing, thanking the three anonymous donors who have taken part in the Adopt a DJ program, part of the way we keep KRFP going, where donors can pick a specific program. Overall, KRFP, a community-supported, community-supporting radio station, is funded by listeners like yourself. If you'd like to become a member, again, go to krfp.org and come on board. This show I'm recording at my home should be broadcast on October 27th, in about 10 days. It's going to feature two interviews, one with Jen Esperia with Labor Slate out of the Bay Area, and the other, a longer item, three segments to it with Mark Anderlich, who's been on my show before, who I consider a friend and comrade. We're looking again at neoliberal capitalism, its impact on workers, specifically austerity, one of its foundational pillars. 
So, again, I hope you stay tuned. Enjoy this. If you'd like to give me any feedback, go to laborlinejohn at yahoo.com. Thank you. This is John Andertrack. It is October 12th. Again, I'm recording from my home in Idaho County, Idaho, on the Clearwater River. Nice rainy day here. Joining me today is Jen Escromera. She is the president of the board of the Labor Slate, a Bay Area group focusing on building uh, worker worker supported uh, candidates right now in the Bay Area. Excuse me for that little flub there, Jen. I'll just leave it to you. I'll go from. I'll let you go from there. You could introduce yourself, and we can start talking about Labor Slate and uh, what it has going on down there. Hi, yeah, thank you. Um, so I am uh, also a member of uh, IOPSI, the State Hands Union in San Francisco, uh, and I am currently in, uh, involved with the Labor Committee for East Bay BSA. I got involved with the Labor Slate uh, earlier this year around the time that Shelter in Place began. And uh, out at our founding convention in August was nominated to be president of the executive board. Congratulations. So you have a background in labor. Um, uh, you're a member of the union down there and uh, you got uh, you helped get this labor slate going. Uh, I, I found it on on Facebook. I find it interesting. Again, you're looking at um, uh, challenging the system in effect by uh, uh, engaging in an electoral system and having uh, a platform and candidates uh, that support a broad agenda agenda that's all worker focused. Would that be fairly accurate? Yes. Um, yeah. So uh, originally, um, so it, the way it started was organizers from various unions and community groups came together, uh, I believe early last year to start building the bones of, of a labor party essentially across the Bay Area. Um, they were inspired by models like the Richmond Progressive Alliance, uh, but wanted to aim to cover a broader region. Uh, and then when shelter in place began, obviously a lot of people were at home more, had more free time on their hands and work on this, uh, on this slate really took off. Um, so the organizing committee meetings, which I, when I came in, um, I was chairing these meetings, would consist of working groups in which people would build the platform and bylaws uh, through each each session. We would talk about transportation or healthcare, um, write up the platform, share it with the members, and then at the convention we had um, you know, amendments suggested and had a final vote to approve the platform and bylaws as well as to nominate candidates that would represent the slate that all agreed to uphold that platform. Okay, good. So perhaps so the, it's a relatively new organization, obviously has uh, uh, a foundational uh, sense from those uh, like yourself that have been active in the labor struggle in other organizations, other formats, uh, parallel uh, groups. Uh, so perhaps, but you, you mentioned your platform. Uh, 
while it, it it deals specifically in parts with what's go what workers face in the Bay Area, uh, I found it very universal, especially uh, uh, starting at the very top. Uh, so. The, can we go over your platform, perhaps? I mean, starting with uh, oh, what I just truly appreciate. Uh, number one, everyone should be uh, have a well-paid, unionized job. But I say that everyone needs a union when you hear people's struggles, be it uh, told not to cash your paycheck until, the, until they say it's okay, to uh, wage theft, to unsafe work conditions. Uh, a lot of this, again, uh, underline our society and brought, in my opinion, to the forefront under the current uh, pandemic slash economic crisis. Yes, yeah, and and I I feel it's really important uh, when you're talking about that everyone should be part of a union to conceptualize that not as you know everyone should have a service that represents them, but that everyone should be able to collectively. Uh, negotiate with with uh, the support of other workers who have the same needs and concerns. Um, we should all be able to uh, to go to our employers, right, and and negotiate our contracts. Um, I think a lot of people look at the union in a service model, uh, and we really want to emphasize having candidates on our slate who have a background actually working with the communities that they represent. Right. And so once again, right, your, your platform calls for uh, uh, everyone, uh, uh, you support the unionization rights of all workers, ensure public work contracts, go to unionized workforces, so, which deals directly again with looking at getting people in the levers of power, if you will, that decide where those funds are spent. Uh, and uh, can have a tremendous, uh, do have a tremendous impact on society and workers for good or for ill. Uh, again, you're looking at uh, electing candidates that embrace this platform and all its facets and uh, will represent workers, uh, give access to workers in the uh, political uh, government structure. With, uh, again, does that uh, paint a fairly accurate picture? Mm-hmm. And then, and then, you know, in addition to that, uh, like you said, that we've got a broad, a broad range of issues covered under the platform. Um, we have affordable housing, uh, which has been really important for our candidates in Hayward, uh, especially. And then, um, medical care. We have uh, Kim Griffin on the Sequoia Health Board um, or Healthcare Board. Uh, has been an organizer uh, for a long time uh, with other nurses. So we're trying to really make sure that we we address each issue uh, that that affects workers. Right. Again, yeah, the work what affects workers does not begin and end when you show up at the workplace. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. You could bargain for. Uh, a better pay, but you, it's, you're kind of on a treadmill there if uh, you don't have uh, affordable housing, if you have to commute uh, 90 minutes, two hours, whatever my case may be down your way, uh, and then you actually get into that later in your uh, uh, platform uh, 
when you talk about free public mobility and transportation. So again, it's it's very I'm impressed. All, all very organic. It might it might be the term, maybe not, maybe I misused it, but it it it, it looks at the broad spectrum that faces workers, and uh, not you're not looking at what necessarily uh, could be covered by union negotiations under labor slate. You're bringing in union people, uh, work uh, labor activists. But you're you're looking at what can be addressed by those in uh, political positions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like I said, the, these um, positions on this platform all were created through this process of our members showing up to working group meetings, showing up to organizing committee meetings, having really robust discussions about how each policy affected them as workers and uh you know in the case of some people who are stewards for their locals um how it affects people in their industry right and so uh another term that comes to mind listening to you is the idea of bargaining for the common good or addressing the common good uh which uh you can uh be seen uh in some labor actions across the country, actually, uh, Los Angeles teacher strikes uh, of this year, I believe, comes to mind. The Chicago teacher strike um, and uh, healthcare workers, uh, all, all. But again, they're in a union context, the workplace context, which is fine. Uh, you're you're uh, building uh, an interesting organization. You're, you even use the term a labor party. Do you do you? Right now, you're running for unaffiliated uh, positions, though. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. And uh, we, uh, a lot of people tend to be confused about, because we're a new organization, a lot of people initially were seeking endorsements. And what we wanted to make really clear to people is that we're not uh, an endorsement body. Uh, We specifically are trying to seek out worker leaders and activists and organizers who uh, who are passionate about upholding these policies and encourage them to run for these smaller nonpartisan races and start getting involved uh, so that there are more options uh, outside of the current what's what's considered labor-friendly candidates. Right, with all the um complications if you will or the competing uh, interests that uh, we see on uh, the macro level especially in my opinion when we we see at the national or or state level where uh labor um it has to compete with other other interests and uh and then of course uh, uh in the united states especially at again at the national state levels um uh, on our two-party system, we're all—I believe—we're we're kind of behind a behind a curve there because uh, uh, we don't have a labor party nationally, like you would see in in Europe, as an example. Uh, we don't even have parties that you actually can belong to, let alone uh, uh, have them focused on labor. And so, yeah. yeah so uh, again, and, and I was seeing that your bylaws, your democratic. Uh, organization uh, everyone uh, gets to uh, participate which again is uh, uh, completely contrary to uh, the two uh, main parties in in United States many people don't seem to get that but I try to point that out that you cannot become a member of the Democratic uh, Party 
for the most part, you you uh, it's all uh, uh, centralized to a great degree. If you want to be part, you have to become part of the organization as compared to, say, the Labour Party in uh, the UK. Yeah, and we, it's at this point, it's pretty easy to participate in the labor site. You can, it's it's like $5 a month to sign up and become a member, and then you'll get information about our meetings, which are being held over Zoom, of course, um, with all of the COVID concerns. And, you know, we're, you're able to hear the work that we're doing organizing for our candidates, but also uh, we've still been building up the structure of this organization. Uh, we've now added um, a communications working group uh, with the, our communications officer, and then we've got field membership engagement, uh, and all of that has come from people attending our meetings uh, and getting getting engaged in the process right and, and again are, are you registered as a political group or, or how uh like getting into a little bit of the nuts and bolts i guess jen i'm speaking with jen escromera she's calling out of the bay area she's with uh labor slate a uh, bay area of course san francisco pretty generic when we say bay area the san francisco greater san francisco area uh they're uh, a labor focused group uh, bringing in labor labor leaders, organizers, those committed to the labor struggle uh, into the political realm, uh, not uh, in and uh, having them right now a number of candidates running for unaffiliated uh, positions, but still linchpins of uh, local uh, power when it comes to serving all the needs of the worker. Um, uh, so are you how are you organized are you organized uh legally are you registered with the state as a political organization jen for those who might be interested in in uh concerning this where they live yeah we are registered as a nonprofit at this time um we are not a, like a pack uh, we essentially folks can donate to the labor site um and then they can also donate to our candidates. And we have been organizing and helping phone bank for candidates. Um, but donations, so the membership uh, specifically goes to building up the slate as an organization. Okay. And uh, and how about, can you say about how many members you have? We have, oh, it's, it's growing like every week. So... <laughs> Um, I'd have to check our most recent notes on that. I think we had around 50 or 60 members last time I checked. I see. Okay. And, and then again, you have a, how many candidates are you running? We have six candidates. Uh, so we have three in Hayward, uh, Lacey Amande, Alicia Crater, and Nestor Castillo who are all running for Hayward city council and they just got endorsed by Bernie Sanders, which is really exciting. Wow. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then we have um, Kim Griffin, who you also spoke with. Yes. Uh, running for the Sequoia health district board. And then Mike Hutchinson, uh, Oakland school board district five and Eduardo Torres, who I believe actually started. Um, he, he was one of our candidates who, 
uh, specifically decided to run because of his engagement in the labor slate. Uh, he's running for Ambrose Parks and Recreation District. Very good. All, all important, all uh, where you build your bench, uh, as they would say in the game. Uh, and, and and even it, 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 just on our own, uh, I'm very impressed, Jen, because uh, so much of those positions uh, affect workers uh, and their families uh, daily, 24 hours a day, uh, what they have to deal with, the school district, the health districts, uh, city councils. It's uh, where a lot of the work gets done. Um, and, you know, Sanders obviously knows, noted that when he endorsed those candidates. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't get the, the old, uh, it doesn't suck the oxygen out of the air when it com- is compared to, uh, you know, the presidential race and, and all that good stuff. But day in, day out, I, I, I can appreciate how that uh, is going to be so important. Um uh, so right now you're probably focused on the Bay Area, but are you looking at any kind of strategic plan or are you are you seeing some interest uh, coming your way? People communicating with you perhaps to uh, uh, do the same thing more or less in other areas? Yeah, we've definitely had people who um, have joined who are not in the Bay Area because they're interested. I think they're interested in, in the mission of the state and in the model that we've put forward, which I think is a model that can really be adapted uh, and implemented anywhere. I think people, you know, just being able to democratically elect these candidates to represent a platform that also was put together by members of the organization um, that have backgrounds as working class uh, people and, and have a vested interest in these communities. It's, it's something that I think has a broad uh, appeal. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I feel like we were, uh, you know, so many of our uh, civic institutions were um, on a, a, a bed of sand, you will, and uh, before COVID and the shutdown, the economic uh, crash, uh, it, all of this brought it to highlight, be it healthcare or uh, uh, housing, transportation. Uh, and so uh, it, it, it does seem to be a rising level of consciousness on that part. Uh, and you said that anyone can join. You don't have to be in the Bay Area. Um, if, uh, if there's anything else you'd like to add, go right ahead, Jen. I mean, we have time here, but if you want, uh, do you want to say uh, where they can find you uh, out there at the uh, social media world? Yeah, um, if you, so we have a, our website, which is laborslate.org, where you can find a lot more information about um, us and our candidates. And then, uh, like you said, our platform and bylaws are on there. Uh, we are on social media as well. We've got a Facebook page, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, they're all under Laborslate. And um yeah, I would just say, you know, we're looking forward to growing our membership. Right now, we're really focused on supporting the candidates that are on our slate uh, since ballots have dropped and we're, we're doing big pushes with lit, lit drops and phone banking. Um, but in the future, we want to engage more people within the Bay Area and work with them from day one of their campaign because the timing this year was uh, such that when, when we... Ha- 
had held our convention, um, a lot of candidates were already like starting to work on their campaigns. And we really want to hear about people who are uh, interested in our, our vision, who, you know, would want to run in future races with the, like as representatives of the slate. Well, that's good. Again, laborslate.org. Um, uh, I did interview Kim Griffin, who's running for that Sequoia uh, Health District out of Redwood City, I believe. Uh, pretty large area, serves a lot of people. Again, an intersection of uh, worker needs uh, that don't uh, get addressed at the workplace, sadly, United States. Uh, for most people, they don't have the, the health care access that, that they need. Um so best of luck, Jen. Again, I'm very impressed. Jen Estromera out of the Bay Area with Labor Slate. Uh, looking forward to, uh, so are these elections uh, part of the general election day, 11-3? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, maybe I'll get you back We can, uh, and we can uh, do a follow-up. Best of luck to all you folks. I can't tell you how much I appreciate anyone that's willing to run for public office. Uh, I feel that this this country uh, from my perspective, at my age, has truly suffered from a lack of uh, understanding of the civic good, of, civ- of civil and civic engagement. Uh, and so uh, uh, I'm just happy to be able to speak with you today. So anything else or should we just close her up? Um, no, thank you so much. For oh. Okay, hold on a second while I stop recording here.
KRFP, KRFP, Moscow, Idaho, 90.3 FM, KRFP.org. The show is Labor Lines, coming up with that interview with Mark Anderlich. Stay tuned. This is John Andrzejczyk, again, on the banks of the Clearwater River in Idaho County, Idaho. It's the 6th of October, and joining me once again is my friend and comrade, Mark Anderlich. Mark uh, resides in Missoula, Montana, uh, joining via cell phone, a longtime, lifelong community and uh, union activist and organizer. Uh, we've had some discussions uh, that we recorded looking at neoliberalism, among other things, uh, ongoing discussion with us as it still uh, is so embedded into our economic uh, policies, political policies. And today we're going to be talking about uh, one of the pillars of neoliberalism, austerity, uh, look at some background to it, uh, the fundamental discrepancies are worse. And uh, as we get later into this discussion, uh, the uh, what we consider, both Mark and I consider the 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 8,000 pound gorilla in the room, uh, the call for austerity as we are dealing with the pandemic slash economic crisis. So with that, Mark, thanks for joining and I'm gonna turn it over to you. Well, thanks uh, for having me, John. Um, always a pleasure. And um, hello to all your listeners. Um, uh, we, you know, we've been talking about neoliberalism, you know, uh, at least one show here and kind of a, a series and just wanted to give a kind of a simple definition of what neoliberalism is. And it's really the full word is neoliberal capitalism is, is the proper term. And um, in this case, it doesn't mean like liberal politics, like, you know, Black Lives Matter or anything like that. What liberal in this case means is that the, the government does not intervene into the economy, right? So it, it allows the econ economic actors, corporations, individuals to, you know, to carry out their economic interests and uh, without government um, interference, right, as they, as they see it. And neoliberal um, capitalism uh, came, um, was developed specifically in reaction to the New Deal during the 1930s. And uh, because the people who uh, saw kind of moral hazard in the government getting involved, as it did in a big way uh, during the New Deal in the 1930s. Um, so uh, one of the, and, and it's specifically intended to undermine and destroy the New Deal. I think that's important to really always keep in mind. Um, and uh, uh, both the Democrats and Republicans today, uh, the leadership at, at the very least, um, still embrace neoliberal capitalism um, in different ways. And uh, we're talking about austerity, which really means um, it's a, a, you know, a, a political economy uh, uh, term that is where Congress or a governmental body either uh, cuts spending massively uh, to balance the budget and or raises taxes to do that. Um, and so 
um, as we were talking before, uh, austerity is something that, uh, you know, people will remember several years ago with the financial crisis, uh, the, you know, the German banks and the, you know, who really control the euro um, imposed on Greece. Uh, terrible austerity, terrible cuts to uh, and enforce the Greek government in a series of moves to, you know, cut their government spending to, you know, very little. And um, it's instructive to look back on that because Greece has not recovered. There's not uh, any sort of magic in these austerity budget cuts. And we hear now during the pandemic that, you know, the CARES Act that the federal government um, created, uh, $2.2 trillion for small businesses and average, uh, you know, workers in this country. Um, and they they created that money and spent it. And, you know, it, it, it helped. But, of course, the uh, so-called budget deficit was is in terrible shape. And now, especially Republicans are arguing against further stimulus during the pandemic, which we desperately need, obviously. Uh, and they're arguing against it because it's, you know, this is a debt to our children, you know, our children will have to pay off. We've all heard these arguments about <clears throat> about the, the budget deficit and how terrible it is, but um, it's really based on a lie. And the lie is that the federal budget is like our household budget, right? Uh, or our personal budget or a business's budget. It is in no way like our own personal budget. Okay. And the primary reason is that uh, if I were to create money, if I were to counterfeit money um, to pay my debts, um, I would likely end up going to prison for that. Um, the federal government, can create its own money like it did during the CARES Act, pay off its debts to do for a number of reasons. Um, and Congress has that power. Congress has that power to do it. So, um, so the, you know, uh, Alan Greenspan, when he was head of the Federal Reserve Bank and answering uh, 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 Paul Ryan, who was a a congressperson from Wisconsin ran for vice president. Uh, Ryan was trying to get Alan Greenspan to agree that we needed to cut, we needed to have austerity in the social security system. We needed to cut payments in order to keep the program solvent. And Greenspan under oath wasn't having any of that. And he said, well, the, you know, the federal government cannot go broke which is absolutely true. It cannot go broke. And, um, and so he said, it, you know, there, there needs to be adjustments. And he was more worried, uh, not, not about the federal deficit in order to, you know, make Social Security uh, viable for the next 30, 50 years. He was worried about having the resources with which to buy things, you know, uh, like housing or, uh, you know, um, automobiles, things like this, that he said that, uh, that's a bigger worry to him, um, because the federal government can't go broke. Uh, so, um, and I think that, you know, people can bring up all sorts of other, uh, um, 
you know, cautionary tales about inflation and other things. But um, we need to get that right off the bat, that austerity is built on a lie. And the lie is that the federal government can go broke. And that's not true. Uh, Absolutely not true. Uh, Right. And that's interesting. Right. And that point, I remember that, you know, the argument still continues on Social Security and sadly, um, or maybe uh, not sad, well, sadly, in one sense, and needs to be exposed as the other is, uh, as I just was saying before we started recording, Mark, so many of the uh, burdens on the the 99% or the 70% of the country, the working class, middle class, uh, is bipartisan. Uh, Barack Obama uh, signaled openly to uh, Ryan that he would look upon cuts on Social Security and Medicare. Um, uh, Social Security is taxed now to some extent uh, for the same reason that they were looking at those cuts is because, uh, in effect, uh, we're not looking at taxes. Uh, the tax would be scrapping the lid or what we call the cap on Social Security. So, like you say, again, in the era that we're living in, um, a, a sovereign country like the United States cannot go broke. And I think one can even look at it more fundamentally is that um, when we talk about the lenders and the borrowers and the system that uh, we rely on to uh, uh, have deficit spending, uh, that cannot exist without the government. The government ha- the government comes first. It's not the chicken and the egg. Having the government right. allows for the banking system. So um yes. we've we've seen this in the past. We talked about this just a few minutes ago. Um this this interjection into the public discussion going back to Carter, uh and certainly Reagan put it on roids, is that government is supposed to be like a family budget. Is supposed to be like a business. They have to balance your books. Um, uh, sadly, though, of course, due to uh, globalization, deindustrialization, uh, financial deregulation, uh, again, neoliberal capitalist policies, um, families don't get to balance their uh, budgets, do they? We, so many of us are tenuous no. on debt. <laughs> so I got to, yeah, uh, I mean, how, how ironic is that, right? And so... Um, I, one one thought exercise that I'd like to uh, to bring up to people too, like congressional aides that I talk to and try to say, look, you know, the budget deficit, it, 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 I'm not saying it's not at all important. I'm just saying that, uh, you know, think about what you're proposing when you want to balance the budget. So if we have uh, a budget deficit, Right now, of say say it's fifteen trillion dollars. I'm not sure exactly if that's how close that is or not, but it, which means that uh, over time there has been fifteen million dollars more paid out by the federal government than they have taken in in taxes. That's what that means. But um, what what you fail to understand is if you so if you want to rectify that, if you want to completely balance the budget. Um, it's a it's double entry bookkeeping, right? Um, that uh, that fifteen trillion dollars that's fifteen trillion dollars in the private economy that the government has put in, okay? At the in in a, with a fifteen bit do- trillion dollar 
deficit on the books of the government, okay? And so in order to balance that, the federal government would have to tax out of the economy $15 trillion of above and beyond what it is doing now. And if, if that were the case, uh, we would we would be in a in a far worse depression than we are right now. That would be that would cause so much. Uh, I mean, it would collapse the economy. Well, it, 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 it would collapse would. society. I think, Mark. Excuse yeah, me. Clap, yeah, we, we, yeah. We would we would be in failed state at that point. Uh, even a even a portion of that would put us in a failed state. And you're right. You, yep. you have to look at it as double entry. Um, uh, uh, and uh, for many reasons, both economic, uh, but uh, fundamentally social, um, uh, uh, right. it's not a bread and circuses. It's keeping people in their homes to some extent or the other, uh, keeping uh, food on the table, um, keeping the system running, a, a complex right. system, you know, of 300 some million people in a world of what, 7 billion. Uh, so uh uh, Menken was Menken's uh, famous quote: "For every complex problem, there is a simple answer. The problem is a simple answer is always wrong." Well, and, and I, I think if you look at well, what is the purpose? What is the goal of our political economy? Is it to have a have the balance of payments between the government and the the, the rest of the economy, the real economy, to have that equal? Or is it to have people um, thriving and healthy and productive and, you know, creating things and um, living a good life? Take your pick, right? right? If you believe the former, then you believe that austerity is actually the way to go. Um, and if, you know, so putting it in that, in those terms, our political leaders on both parties have really uh, 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 has chosen the the uh, the wrong headed the the completely wrong idea that you know um, we should balance the budget. Right, but then uh, they uh, but not they picked the wrong one from our perspective, Mark, and for those who have, um, I would I'm going to guess most of those who listen are going to listen to this interview. Uh, in whatever format or venue our talk here, uh, but it served that it has served them well. And so to me, that comes back to um, how economic policy, political economic policy, uh, regardless of it, if it's built on sand, like you said, built on a lie, uh, is weaponized. I mean, yeah. it's, and we talk about how neoliberal capitalism with its, uh, I describe it as their three legs, austerity, deregulation, and uh, I forget the other one, but those are two of the three, austerity uh, and privatization. Uh, privatization. Yes, uh, and both parties have embraced it. Like you said, the Republicans more or less defended under their free market mantra. Right. The Democrats, right. in, uh, since Clinton especially, cloak it around uh, their social liberal stance, you know, social liberal, yeah. economic conservative, um, and, you know, they're Republican light. Uh, you know, I always talk about, uh, not always, but I'd like to point out that when Clinton's response to Reagan's the, uh, um, 
big government is the problem uh, line from his first inaugural address, uh, Clinton's was uh, the era of big government is over. So Clinton, right. Clinton right. chose in those words not to have a full throated defense of a civil society, in my opinion. And, yes. and go, I, I, yeah. Yes. And, and I think, I think we're, um, I, I, I was just reading this really interesting uh, review about how the bankruptcy of New York City mm. in 1975-76, somewhere in that vicinity, um, really was kind of the maybe the the entree of neoliberal political economic thought into American society, and um, because uh, you know the the uh, Republicans were all about saying, well, you know, liberal democratic New York city was spending way beyond its means and et cetera, et cetera. And, um, but it would, it didn't take into consider, you know, what, what they failed to mention was that the economic forces were driving all kinds of people out of New York city, right. The, the, the political economy. Um, and, uh, and Detroit was kind of the same way, maybe, you know, a few years earlier where, um, you have some of the fundamental, uh, economic institutions starting to crumble. Okay. Not because of New York city's profligate spending, but because of, of, uh, capitalism, right. Of, 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 you know, the interests of the owning class and, um, and so you, you, you have a kind of a perfect setup for this ideology of neoliberalism, saying, well, we, you know, in order uh, – now, in the case of New York City, New York City could not create its own money, right? New York City can go broke, um, and, uh, and, and so can state governments, okay, because they don't have contr- control over the currency, and in those cases, it was um, kind of a combination of the lack of federal support, right? That uh, that uh, I think it was Gerald Ford who refused to bail out New York City, right? And kind of showed the way a little bit um, to introduce neoliberal thought into the broader, um, uh, you know, political sphere. And I think that where the Democrats, you know, um, found themselves between rock and a hard place instead of defending kind of, you know, I think they were still living in the gold, you know, gold currency era uh, where money is limited um, that instead of sort of taking on that, the sort of new neoliberal thought, which they thought was probably extremely right wing, they did buy into the argument that, um, you needed taxes to raise revenue on the federal level, right? And as you do, I mean, the state of Montana, New York City, the state of Idaho, you can't deficit spend in those governments. You have to balance your budget and and because you don't have control of the country. But on the federal, there's no excuse on the federal level. In fact, the the chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York in 1946 wrote that taxes for revenue are obsolete. And he said Beardsley Rummel is his name and people could, could look him up, but he is exactly right. And it still is true 
that um, all the programs that the federal government has, those aren't funded by taxes by and large. Social Security somewhat is, okay, the Social Security tax, and, you know, somewhat from uh, Medicaid and Medicare, the Medicaid, Medicare payroll tax, but, um, or at least the Medicare tax. And, uh, but all the rest of it is, uh, you know, Congress just authorizes the spending, they create the money and they spend it. Okay. That's what they do. And, uh, Rummel, you know, they'll issue bonds and things like this, but they don't even have to do that as Rummel will say, uh, after their whole experience with the great depression, the new deal and world war two, which was all spent with the government just coming up with the money, creating the money and then spending it into the economy. So, um, that's a really, and I think Democrats who believe that taxes are the only way you could uh, fund programs find find themselves in, in an austerity trap, okay, in that um, they need to, they felt like they needed to make alliances with big business and to grow the economy so that there's more revenue in taxes, so there's more revenue to pay for programs. And this is where I think the beginning of the Democratic Party completely losing its way uh, as it is now. And it's, it's, the leadership is mostly a party of, you know, the, the, the corporate elite, and as we see in Biden, and with very little concern, um, you know, by Nancy Pelosi, over people suffering because the government stimulus money has dried up and she's more interested in, you know, uh, trying to win the election, but also buys into this, into the, into the uh, lie that uh, taxes are meant to raise money for programs, which is clearly not the case. Right. Well, that's uh, interesting. Uh, I'm going to speak with Mark Anderlich. Uh, he's out of Missoula, Montana, a friend and a comrade, a lifelong uh, community organizer, labor organizer. Uh, uh, another discussion that we've been having that we've uh, recorded and broadcast under various venues about neoliberal capitalism. Uh, Mark brought up some great historic points here. Um, it's tied to uh, its reaction to uh, the New Deal. Uh, and then, boy, yeah, that the going back to New York City, yeah, that was a, you know, I, I I was thinking about what you're you're when you were saying talking about that, Mark. That really brought it back. I was just getting out of high school. I just probably just got out of high school in the seventies. Graduated in seventy three. Uh, uh, you know, of course, we're living in very turbulent times, but uh, uh, those are that time. Uh, you know, you that really wouldn't have to take a second seat to. Uh, What's going on now with uh, the end of Vietnam, uh, a lot of demoralization among the people when so much was exposed uh, from the Pentagon Papers. Too bad people don't realize that the culpability of both Democrats and Republicans in that Vietnam War, LBJ. Um, and uh, it was played like a fiddle. Uh, the one side just maintained its uh, strength. There was as much uh it, again, the weaponization of neoliberal capitalist uh, economics, Mark, uh, weaponizing it. Yeah. Uh, um, really, it was a more as much as anything. It was a cultural war or cult, a front 
there. I mean, the, the right. attack on, on New right. York City, again, using uh, economic policy uh, as, a, as a weapon in, in, that, in that front. Yes, and there, there's, that's a really good point. And there's many examples of this, of politicians using, you know, the lie of neoliberalism um, to really further their own agendas, right? Either, you know, solidifying the control of the, you know, 0.01% over our political economy or um, or other things. And one good example, I, I just was reading a, um, a, uh, a story by ProPublica. It was published about, I don't know, about a year ago, a little bit more than that, um, about the Internal Revenue Service and how in during the Obama years um, and a little bit after that, um, in the second administration, the uh, Republicans uh, were so angry about how the IRS was really kind of the principal tool of enforcement of the standards of the of the Affordable Care Act, right? Obamacare, and um, and they and they had such a, a peak about that that uh, that their budget was was substantially cut, like twenty five percent or maybe even more, maybe closer to a third for their enforcement. Now, that does a lot of things, okay? It does, uh, one is it allows, uh, you know, and we were talking about this earlier, the wealthier you are, the more proclivity you have to cheat on your taxes. That's, there's been all kinds of studies that show that just crystal clear. And so, um, having less enforcement powers of the IRS allows the wealthy to cheat more and with impunity. Um, but what it also does is uh, uh, it, it, it completely undermines the, the morale of the workers in the Internal Revenue Service. And um, under modern monetary theory and a lot of, you know, uh, other uh, more realistic views of how you know, the, the political economy works, um, it, that uh, one of the principal weapons against fighting inflation is the IRS, is raising taxes on the rich, um, especially. And if, uh, you know, if, the, if this uh, austerity uh, imposed upon the IRS, which was I mean, the, some of the Republican leaders were very uh, upfront about the, this is to punish the IRS for, you know, uh, being an instrument to Im- implement the, the ACA or Obamacare. Um, uh, but also the Democrats at the time were mostly silent or pretty impotent because they didn't want to rally to defend the IRS. And there was some made up stories about, uh, how the IRS went after conservative groups, you know, that Obama was using the IRS. Well, I mean, that was a lie. It, it ended up that the IRS was also going after progressive groups at the time. But, you know, one little lie helps uh, that amplified in the media then uh, makes it, you know, kind of a stampede, a political stampede toward, you know, letting the IRS twist in the wind. And ironically enough, if the federal government doesn't have the IRS as an effective tool 
for taxation, it might find itself down the line once we're out of this depression uh, caused by Congress inaction, I would say, not because of the pandemic, but con- congressional inaction has caused this depression. Um, then, uh, it, it, you know, once if we get out of this and there's no tool there to fight inflation, then the, the, the wealthy people may regret that they defunded the IRS because inflation reduces the value of their assets and reduces the value of what is owed to them. And, um, and they, you know, they, they may see a drop in their net worth because the IRS has been hobbled. So there's just an example of the weaponization. And there's many, many more examples of weaponization of, of uh, austerity against programs that one party or the other doesn't like. Correct. Okay. Uh, again, speaking with Mark Anderlecht, uh, talking uh, about neoliberalism, neoliberal capitalism, and austerity. Some background here. Mark, we're going to take a, I'm going to stop the recording right now. We're just about to a 30 minute break, which works well in that uh, broadcast world that both you and I live in, where we have to hit that station identification. So, folks, uh, just wait here. I'm going to stop this recording. <laughs> 